Hi, it's Pete Mills, and welcome to Pete Mills Musicals. We are back for a bonus episode talking a little bit more about Evergreen and what some of our inspirations were when we were writing it. And I'm Kara Reichel. I'm one of the co-creators of Evergreen. I do want to say up front that there may be some spoilers in this episode. So if you have not yet heard the entire show and you are concerned about spoilers, then maybe don't listen to this one first. The entire show is available as a single continuous episode, if you prefer that. Uh, That was episode seven of the podcast. So go check that out if you haven't. And yes, avoid any spoilers by listening to the show first. One thing we want to talk about is kind of where this idea even started for us. We actually wrote this show quite a while ago um, during the fall of 2009. It has been so long, in fact, that the particular book, which was a jumping off point for much of the research... I could no longer locate uh, and really wanted to for this episode. Uh, we so we're going to give we you. We think it's in of, the closet somewhere, but it's yeah. a little. Uh, it's a little buried. So, um. <laughs> but we are going to tell you sort of what we think we remember from the research and uh, stuff that was in this book, and it will no doubt be a little bit wrong and a little bit corrupted and changed, which is kind of what the artistic process is like anyway. You're always misremembering and translating and making it your own when you use stuff. And it's also very much like the way that some of these solstice holiday traditions also evolved and started as one thing and gradually changed. Folk tales, oral traditions, all of these things kind of evolve over time. So you can consider Evergreen another part of that evolution. And uh, we definitely drew on a lot of different sources. It was our intention to create a story that was not any one particular religion in terms of its holidayness, but it was tied to the cycles of nature and um, the solstice, as Pete mentioned. I want to go back to the book for just a second. There was a book, there still is a book, you can check it out, called When Santa Was a Shaman. The thesis of this book was that these wintertime solstice holidays are rooted in ancient mythological traditions, all related to the solstice, to the shortest, darkest days of the year, and then the turning of the seasons and the return of the light into the world, and that humankind has for a long time marked and celebrated this occasion. Santa was a shaman is specifically a reference to there's often a a central holiday figure who presides over these various solstice rituals and has taken many forms in many different cultures and and religions. Uh, Santa is just one of those. As far as uh, holiday mythologies and symbolism, I want to start with like one of the big central ones, certainly the central one to our particular story. The evergreen tree and the kind of the idea of a tree being involved in the celebration of these winter solstice rituals. Well, if you go back to prehistoric times when people are just trying to survive in their caves in the winter, man's discovery of and mastery of fire was really important. And perhaps early on, the way that fire was discovered was lightning or some other way that a tree... Um, caught on fire and people learned that that provided warmth if they continued to feed the fire and they brought it into their cave or their domicile and tended it. Um, So, you know, we can look at these traditions and in in some places, you know, they actually do still put flaming candles on the branches of a tree. (laughs) We don't do that anymore. We've got nice little electric lights, LED lights that are much safer. The idea is that it's deeply embedded in our 
caveman memories, our collective unconscious, the importance of the, the flaming tree. Uh, and so we continue to celebrate the season with it, with the symbol of hope and a means the tree of survival. Of life, the tree yeah. of life and the tree of fire. Also, an evergreen tree is a further potent symbol in that this is a particular type of tree that remains green throughout the cold, dead wintertime, whereas other trees do not. So a further symbol of life persevering. Shelter, fuel, a promise of renewal, everlasting, evergreen. Going back to this book, When Santa Was a Shaman, one of the fascinating things was a history of these shamanic figures who have presided over various solstice rituals, and there are a lot of them. Everyone, of course, knows Santa Claus and perhaps knows that that evolved out of the Dutch Sinterklaas and that Sinterklaas was a corruption of St. Nicholas. Uh, St. Nicholas was an actual 4th century Greek saint who really did do good deeds and give gifts to the poor, Save I believe. Save some children, I think, and yeah. Another variety of the Santa Claus figures is Kris Kringle sometimes just considered another name for Santa Claus. Uh, but Chris Kringle really comes from the German Christkindl, which is the newborn Christ child, Christkind. Uh, and I think in that tradition, it was the, the, the baby itself that would give bring gifts. Bring the gifts, bring the gifts. That's yeah. really kind of hard for a baby when you think about it. <laughs> How did the baby carry the, the Well, baby? I'm sure it, yeah, I'm sure it goes back to the idea of the, the three wise men that brought the gifts to the manger um, of the Christ child. A big part of these celebrations often seem to involve like gifts for the children, but also possible punishments for the children if they weren't good. I think incentivizing your children's behavior. Was... Well, this was the cold time of year where everyone had to cram into that cave. <laughs> had to be stuck in the cave really, with those kids. With the kids, yeah, there was no you know hunching gathering going on. Everyone was just trying to survive in the cave. So you had to keep the kids in line. Getting back to Evergreen and what we specifically took from all of this lore and mythology used for our story, another one of these Santa Claus-like figures is Belsnickel. The etymology of that particular name, Bells comes from pelts or like furs, animal skins, and Nickel is just another reference to Nicholas, St. Nicholas. So it was the fur-clad Nicholas who would travel around and was, as many of the figures are, a kindly old man who would have gifts for the children, but also, and this is important for our version in Evergreen, also carried a stick with which to, to beat the naughty children. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of these are, uh, they're called dark Santa figures. Like because Krampus, right? Yeah, Krampus is a terrifying Santa figure. Yeah, so they're they're associated with the holidays and the solstice, but they're not nearly as nice as our Santa has evolved. He, I guess you can still get on Santa's naughty list and get some coal in your stocking, but he's not going to come and beat you with this stick. Uh, so obviously in our story, um, Belsnickel did feature some of the, the Santa-like characteristics in that he, he carries a large sack and that he did give gifts to the children, specifically in the form of the, the food that the children take with them. And then also our Belsnickel did carry a stick. And when you had that yen, you would be glad you had on hand a stick to scratch that particular itch. That is the when of the wild witch. 
we should talk a little bit about uh, another one of the characters that came from this uh, kind of solstice mythology, and that is our character, Takharus. Do you want to talk a little bit about him? Takharus is connected to the idea of Odin and the wild hunt, the great hunt that would happen uh, in the wintertime in Northern Europe. This is also sort of somewhat evolved into the Santa myth because Odin became connected in certain ways with the Santa figure in his sleigh being pulled by the reindeer. But this is connected to yeah. the idea of the the time of winter when you would have the great hunt and, and put away the food that you would need for the winter. And they would hunt reindeer, they would hunt elk. And so that idea got fused into this, this stag uh, figure in our story. Odin would travel the night skies. In the original, I think he rode on his his gray horse, but that did evolve later into a, a carriage or sleigh that was pulled by reindeer. I think. And I think two of like his reindeer. two of his reindeer are named Donder and Blitzen, uh, which is thunder and lightning. So he was this an old man who also gave gifts, and actually one of his uh, Norse names was Yulnir. Kind of like the like Thor's hammer, Mjolnir. This was Yulnir, and apparently Yulnir is where we get the word Yule, as in the Yule tide, the time of year when when Odin goes on this ride, the Great Hunt. In our version, Takharus as a stag is kind of tied into, I would say, the the reindeer he's part, part of man, that. part yeah. stag. Yes, he's a stone stag. I would say in in our story, he is he is less of the the benevolent gift giver, although he does help Maya reach her ultimate destination. But he is maybe one of the more... Sterner. Yeah, mm. like he's a dark Santa figure in a way, I guess. I think of it with Joshi's misbehavior. Joshi's bad behavior gets him in trouble and, and he kind of receives his punishment, not directly from Takharus, but Takharus is the one who explains why, why Joshi is being punished. Well, I think Takharus is sort of down on humans and the way that humans treat nature and control nature. And so I think there's sort of a larger metaphor there. I also think that that section of the story is dealing with some of the masculine archetypes that we have. And it's interesting that the father, who has sort of lost hope at the beginning of the story, is also the same person who plays Takarus. So there's this sense of a moment where you're wondering what is going to happen to Joshi? Is he ever going to grow up? Is he going to become hardened and hopeless in the same way that his father and Takarus have. So that part of the story for me is less about the specific symbols and metaphors and more about this question of different archetypes of masculinity and um, how emotionally available uh, the father and the son are both allowed to be in this culture. It can happen to a human. It can happen to a What happened to these trees? Let's talk a little bit about stories in the stars and what connection, if any, it has to all of this uh, solstice stuff. 
obviously there is a lot of resonance with the idea of the three wise men following the star and navigating by the stars. Well, the way that they are following a star to get to their far off destination where the hope for the rebirth of the world lies is is much like the star that led the, the wise men to the manger in Bethlehem. And there's also a connection to the idea of the North Star, a guiding light, um, true north, and, and the North Pole where Santa is. And there's actually a really interesting Slavic myth called the World Tree, where the North Star is considered the top of this world tree, and it is fixed, and all the other stars rotate around it. Uh, and those are the, the lower branches of the tree. And that's kind of a myth that combines both the tree motif and the, the lights on the tree and might have something to do with why uh, the traditional topper of the Christmas tree is often a star. Yeah, and I think in general, you know, when you think about the winter, the stars are just so clear and bright and present and you get to see them for a lot longer because it's darker out. So it's the time of year when there is more darkness. You can also see those pinpoints of light more clearly than perhaps at other times. They would look to heaven's already hinted at this, but there were sources of inspiration or things that we perhaps shamelessly stole from beyond just the research into uh, solstice mythologies. One of those sources of inspiration certainly was the Wizard of Oz. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Cara? Sure. I already began to mention it. You know, Maya and Joshi leave their home community and the other characters there are their mother, Anya, their father, Rochik, and their uncle, Wujak. And those three actors uh, in the stage production and also in the podcast reappear as characters that they meet along the way, sort of mentors and threshold guardians. After Maya and Joshi go into sort of the special, more magical world when they leave home, the, the Oz of our story, they meet these characters, much like Wizard of Oz, one at a time along the way. Although unlike Wizard of Oz, the characters do not join the quest and come along. Rather, she meets them, usually gains something valuable from having met them and moves on to the next stage of the story. And I was just remembering um, how we had little bits of foreshadowing of each of their their magical characters in the home world. Uh, do you, you remember what I'm talking about? Like, for instance... Yeah, Wujek comes in with the bag the, of the things that they've gathered. Yeah. Happy holiday! What a haul for the holiday. Rochik, the father, brings the antlers, right, which are the which new tree. Right, he's going tree. to be the stag. Are these antlers our new tree? <laughs> this is the best I could find. Uh, mostly with mom, it's about the fire. And does she have anything specific yeah, to I do with like the stars? Yeah, I feel like there should be some star reference with yeah. the mother. Tonight we keep the fire going all night. And I get to stay up late! You could probably make the case that keeping the fire going all night is a reference to the stars shining at night. But probably an even better bit of foreshadowing of Stories in the Stars is at the top of the show when Mother tells Maya that stories are important. And of course, Maya doesn't believe it. But then when they are lost at sea, Maya remembers the stories that Mother told her about the constellations. And that ultimately is part of the way that they are able to navigate and continue the journey. Oh, it's Cassiopeia's throne. 
How do you know? Mother used to tell me the story. Cassiopeia was the queen. Oh, oh, actually, wait. Let me finish my my Wizard of Oz thesis uh, because I feel like there was even maybe on a subconscious level uh, some influence on the idea of the the different biomes that you pass through on this this journey, like the um, the dark, scary forest. Uh, we certainly the forest is is often the scary place in stories like this. But then I was thinking the the field of poppies in the Wizard of Oz, where they're a danger of falling asleep forever. To me, is very much like the the crossing of the great sea where they uh, lose the wind and are in danger of being stuck in the middle of it forever and the arrival of like the Emerald City as your destination to me again is very much like the green grove of evergreen trees uh, that's, uh, that's our Emerald City I don't know if I don't recall thinking about it that specifically but I remember thinking um, and this is a little bit where we cross into Star Wars territory but I know that George Lucas always liked to have very distinct and different biomes in his films because it was just exciting to go to too visually. And when we did the initial production, I remember the the golden color of the desert and then the blue color of the, the sea and the green when we finally get to the forest. And I think it's also worthwhile to mention that the trees that Maya discovers when she sings Evergreen are actually played by the members of her family as well. And again, in the stage production, if you were to see this, you would actually see the family representing the grove of trees on stage. So I That's think true. That's one of the things I worried about in the podcast form. I was like, is this going to make any sense I about don't think it when does. we hear the song Evergreen? Well, do I don't we think it does, but the, it? I, I think the, there is a resonance that um, hopefully will come through on a certain level that um, the, the life and the traditions and the family relationships that continue to grow over time are sort of that that home that she's looking for, those trees. So, you know, in many ways, the trees and the evergreen trees in the story are a metaphor. I think it, it's beautiful, whether or not you fully understand it, hearing the voices of the family sing in harmony with Maya when she finds them is a great moment. Sounds very nice as It a does quartet. sound very nice. Swaying, bending, a sign of never-ending Another pop culture influence we should perhaps confess to is Lord of the Rings, because you have a story here where the journey takes her to the heart of a volcano. Not to destroy anything, no, but but in fact to 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 claim the pine cone. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, and on her way to the volcano, she passes through a forest where a deep-voiced forest guardian says that humans have come with axes and saws. <laughs> and perhaps we hear some echoes, uh, yes, of, of Treebeard. Um, I think that was, that was certainly well, in there. Well, I will say that I think um, Tolkien and George Lucas uh, also stole and borrowed from the best of them. We, all, we know that all of Tolkien's stuff goes back to that ancient lore of um, the, the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse mythology as well. So we're all kind of tracing our roots back to the same ancient stories and reinterpreting them in different time periods and in different ways. Gandalf himself, by the way, is one of those shamanic uh, Santa Claus-like figures. And he has figures. a stick. He, he carries, carries a, a stick. stick. And he has yeah. the long beard and he, he gives some gifts to the little people. <laughs> Hobbit, <laughs> Hobbits in this case. Yes. Yep. So he he's he's all tied up in it as well. Yeah, really all of the stories um, are one story, as Joseph Campbell told us. Going back to Star Wars, I also think one thing that we might have borrowed from it is just the idea that your your hero's journey begins on a in a desert world. Uh, and, you know, that 
maybe in some way your your hero or heroine in our case needs to to bring life renewal back to this this desert world although i guess star wars doesn't really offer anything about like tatooine's going to suddenly be a a lush paradise no tatooine is still a desert at yeah. the end but <laughs> but nevertheless we we love the desert desert winds i've watched you carve your pathways through the sand each a track that's leading back toward your native land uh the last thing i want to talk about we've, we've spoken a lot about the mythological sources of some of the story materials but there was also a musical source or, or there were musical sources that i drew upon specifically the idea that since we were playing around and mashing up all of these different solstice mythologies and tropes, I was like, wouldn't it be fun to also take some of the holiday music and use it in various ways uh, throughout the score? So these are the the musical Easter eggs that I referred to in our, our preview episode. By way of illustrating the kind of thing I mean, I wanted to tell this little story about Stephen Schwartz and Wicked, which is that uh, on one of the occasions where I was lucky enough to meet him, I said to him that I thought it was so clever the way he had used a, a transformation of the Somewhere Over the Rainbow melody, da, 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 the way he had used that in Wicked in somewhat disguised form to be unlimited. Na, na, na. And I think I, I'd found stuff beyond that at the time. I don't know if I'm going to remember it all, but I was eager to, to spill my knowledge and show how clever I was with this. I think there was also a follow the yellow brick road is, is in the Wicked score as like, can't I make you understand you're having... Them? There are several of those kind of things where he took a melody from the original Wizard of Oz score and used it in a disguised or transformed way in Wicked, which I always thought was so cool. And, you know, after I'd kind of spilled my my findings to him, he was like, yeah, yeah, not everybody noticed that. You, you know, there are more. Or he's like, or he's like, there, there's, there's one or two that <laughs> you didn't look- mention. You've been looking for them ever <laughs> which, since. <laughs> which has driven me insane because I have never found the other other uh, Wizard of Oz quotes that are there in the Wicked score. If you know them, please tell me. I'm sure if you Googled around or listened to some other people's podcasts, you could find out. That's true. A Google search would find this for me, wouldn't it? So before I tell you what all of those Easter eggs are, we wanted to try this as a contest first to see if anyone is listening. There are at least five uh, Christmas eggs, I guess I should call them, uh, that are pretty obvious once you know that you are looking for them. And then there are perhaps three more that I'm quite confident I did put in there, but they're a little bit subtle. And then there are a few more where I was looking through the score and could not remember. I was like, was that meant to be a reference? And you may discover ones that I've forgotten about because, as we've said, this was quite a while ago when we did all of this. In any case, the prize for whomever can find the most of these hidden Christmas carol melodies in the Evergreen score will be a signed copy of the Hello Girls CD, and we realize that none of you can probably play a CD anymore, but nevertheless, it could be a collector's item. So signed by Kara and myself to whomever emails us with the most correctly identified Easter eggs from the score. Go to PeteMillsMusic.com and use the contact tab there to send us a message. Good luck. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit of the, the backstory and the research behind this show. 
um, that we wrote in 2009. Go back and listen to it all again with new appreciation. And also enjoy your ongoing holiday celebrations now with perhaps some additional knowledge about what all those celebrations mean and where they came from. Ever after Ever Ever Ever